All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Draft Board. David Song, Tyson Workington here with you. Hope you guys have been having an excellent week. March Madness, of course, ramping up in a high gear, and we have got some fantastic games been going on on both the men's and the women's side. So no doubt all you Hoops fans out there are soaking that in and enjoying that. But tonight, we have a bit of a special treat for all you listeners out there. Fourth episode in brings us to our first guest on the podcast, and that, of course, is Sarah Moore. Now, Sarah, why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Well, I am what Tyson calls a special Raptors fan, and there's nobody's Raptors fan like I'm a Raptors fan, as he it's true. It's very true. Make make fun of me for, but anyways, I am an Ambrose grad. I am hoping to be a children's pastor down the road here, and I think that Kyle Lowry is awesome. So that's about me. That's a little bit about me. <laughs> it's a pleasure to pleasure to have you here, Sarah. Always nice to have a different perspective, and I'm sure we will be having a lot of fun over the next half hour or so, cracking jokes and just appreciating the Toronto Raptors. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, before we get started with that, however, it is time for our feel-good story of the week. And this one is a little bit more personal on my end. So once again, for those that don't know me too well, I am a part of IUPUI's Sports Capital Journalism Program. And this Monday morning, I had the privilege of attending a Zoom session in which the head of our program, Malcolm Rand, who is a fantastic sports journalist and professor in his own right, moderated a discussion with Jim Nance of CBS Sports fame. And Jim Nance is certainly a commentator who I've come to appreciate over the years. Now, my first introduction to him wasn't that great because it was the video game commentary for Madden NFL 15, which really showed off Jim Nance and Phil Simms' worst side for a lot of years. But in real life, yeah. Jim Nance is, he, he's a great man by all indications, and he is very good at his job. It, it got a little repetitive in the Madden uh, soundtrack and the, and the voiceovers, but, you know, Jim Nance, he's been doing broadcasting for a long time, and he's well respect, respected in the industry for sure. And one of the heartwarming anecdotes that he shared with us uh, back on Monday is the story behind a catchphrase that many of you who have watched him broadcast games, many of you might be familiar with it. He opens a lot of his broadcasts with, hello, friends, welcome to such and such an event. Jim Nance, Tony Romo here with you. And then, of course, he takes you right into the game itself. But he told us why, why he says that and where that comes from. And the answer is very, very personal. It actually stems from his relationship with his father, a man who you can tell he, he loved his dad and his dad was a very important person in his life. But unfortunately, towards the end of his life, Jim Nance's father struggled with Alzheimer's disease and his memory and brain function just continued to decline. And so one day years ago, Jim visited his father in the hospital and he said, listen, I have to go do a game soon. But when I start that broadcast, I'm going to look at the camera and I'm going to say, hello, friends. And, you know, dad, I want you to be aware of that because this is going to be our little secret. So he said that, he did the game, and then afterwards his producer went up to him, Jim Nance that is, and said, that was a really cool thing you just said. You should, you should say that again. 
and he hasn't stopped. And so it was very, very touching anecdote. And it is definitely something that we wanted to, that, that we wanted to hear. We we're interested in hearing and you know, rest in peace, rest in peace to that man. Definitely a, a great man. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's good to hear those stories. And, you know, a lot of sports people are very close with their families and it's, and it's good to have that, that close knit relationship, even in the broadcasting spectrum. So thanks for sharing that, David. For sure. And now, speaking of Jim Nance, it's a great transition into our next subject because Jim Nance is also known for calling college basketball, including March Madness. His alma mater, Houston, has made it through to the Final Four, and no doubt he is thrilled and also obsessing about that. He admitted that he was tightly wound about Houston's fate in the men's side of the NCAA tournament, but he'll definitely have something to look forward to. And speaking of basketball, we're not here necessarily to talk about March Madness today, but we are going to talk about the NBA once again. We're revisiting the NBA, and we're going to revisit the trade deadline and specifically how it affected the Toronto Raptors. And the elephant in the room here is obviously the fact that Kyle Lowry, a 35-year-old six-time All-Star, is still in Toronto where he will remain now at least until the rest of the season. And obviously a lot of Raptors fans have strong feelings about this. Sarah, you're one of them. Yes, I love Kyle. Kyle's awesome. I'm very glad that he is still here. (laughs) But did you expect that he was going to move as a lot of people did? I kind of thought that like he was going to get shipped to probably Philadelphia. That was kind of the rumors that were sort of mulling around and I thought well you know Messiah's like Batman so he's gonna do some crazy deal in the middle of the night and we're gonna wake up and the team's gonna be completely different than it was the day before and uh, they were talking about on the broadcast for the uh, Denver game of like oh this might be Kyle Lowry's last game and you know it was just it was super emotional and it was just you know are we going to lose our guy? Like, is he going to, you know, go, is he going to be on the Sixers in the morning? Like, we don't know. So. For sure. It was a very thing that was crazy. (laughs) Absolutely. And for reference, that that game Sarah was talking about happened uh, last Wednesday, March 24th, and it was special for another reason as well. That was the all-female broadcast crew, Megan McPeak, Kia Nurse, Kayla Gray, Amy Otterbert, and... Kaper Ness took the reins for that one. And all three of us watched that game. I know that I, for one, was impressed with their performance. I was having a lot of fun. And the Raptors won that game to boot. They haven't been winning much lately, so that was a nice bonus. But lo and behold, Kyle is still around. Tyson, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think that when you look at it from a basketball perspective, this doesn't necessarily make sense not to trade Kyle Lowry. Right, like Kyle Lowry, he's on an expiring contract. There's a chance that you can lose him in the offseason. With Kyle Lowry, you know, being 35, he's looking to compete and looking to maybe win championships. And the Raptors might not be the best place to try and win championships at this point. They have been losing a lot of games, but it's been a tough season down in Tampa for them. So with Kyle Lowry, it makes a, a lot of basketball sense to try and trade him recoup assets, maybe try and sign him in the offseason. And if, if you can't sign him in the offseason, then let him go to a contender and, and let him, you know, later on in his career sign a one or one, one or two-day contract to retire as a Toronto Raptor. And that's definitely something that, 
you know, as a possibility for the future. But from an, a team in a basketball perspective, the Toronto Raptors probably could have looked to get some assets for, for Kyle, whether that's a young player or a draft pick. Because uh, let's face it, there's a strong likelihood of Kyle Lowry leaving in the offseason to kind of go in and um, join another, another team and join a contender. And then the Toronto Raptors would kind of lose him for nothing. But when you look at it from like an organizational perspective, it's a much different it's a much different situation when you think about Kyle Lowry. He's the start, he's the heart and soul of that team. And it would be gut-wrenching to both the organization and to the fans to see him trade it and to see him go. So maybe for the long-term health and long-term care of the organization, it was better to keep him than try and recoup basketball assets. Yeah, there's definitely an argument to be made for both sides. We'll get into that a little bit later, but I liked what you said in pointing out the obvious, if you're a Toronto basketball fan, that Lowry, he means a lot. It was tough to see DeMar DeRozan go a couple of years ago. Obviously, Sarah, I bet you remember that. And it's a good thing that Kawhi Leonard and to a lesser extent Danny Green turned out to be guys that were crucial in winning us our first championship. So that was a very risky trade in some ways, but it paid off and Kawhi pulled his weight and then some in the playoffs. But to see Kyle Lowry go as well, even though he is 35, see him go a couple of years after that would certainly not have been a fun thing for many Raptors faithful. Right, Sarah? No. I mean, losing DeMar was tough, but I think at least for me, I knew what was coming so I was like, well, you know, it's okay because Kawhi is coming. And if you've watched Kawhi Leonard play basketball, he is incredible. Mm-hmm. And if you can get him on your team, you go and get him on your team. Certainly. And that kind of brings me to one of, one of my main concerns about trading Paul Lowry is that, he, like we said before, he is getting older. And if you've followed professional sports, not just the NBA, for even a few years, you know that aging veteran rentals tend not to net huge returns on the free agent market. No, sorry, not the free agent market, but on the trade market, rather. And in my experience, that applies not just to basketball, but to hockey, to football as well. And frankly, I was not personally convinced that too many teams would have been willing to give up a great deal for Kyle Lowry. Because what, what do you think we, w- we would have wanted for him? Obviously, it would probably be some combination of a blue-chip prospect, a young guy who will become, in, who will, or at least will likely become an impact player in a couple of years, and hopefully a first-round pick. Because as we know, in the NBA, second-round picks aren't worth much. That draft is only two rounds, and the majority of second-round picks do not succeed in, in the NBA and from, from my point of view, albeit as an outsider, I felt that it was much more likely that teams, even interested teams like Philadelphia, Miami, and the Lakers were reported to be the front runners. And it was, I felt that it was much more likely that they would have been offering a mix of perhaps later, round, later first round picks, second round picks, and essentially bench guys like Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Kelly Olynyk, even someone like Duncan Robinson. And frankly... I don't see how any of those guys help the Toronto Raptors in, in any meaningful 
way. I mean, Kelly Olynyk is kind of a generic stretch four. KCP is an incredibly inconsistent three and D guy. And frankly, I don't understand why he's a starter on the Lakers. And even Duncan <laughs> Robinson is a, is a very, very good three-point shooter, but he's kind of just a three-point shooter, right? And so I personally think that, like you said, Tyson, it may have been worth it from an organizational standpoint to stick by Lowry, to keep his leadership around for at least a few more months, roll the dice in free agency versus trading him for basketball assets that are mediocre in value at best. The report out of kind of the Lakers is that THT, which is a uh, Talon Horton Tucker was kind of one of the pieces that was kind of thinking about being rumored for the Kyle Lowry trade to the Lakers. Uh, the Lakers didn't want to include THT. And that was something that they were, you know, hard nosed on and, and they weren't going to give them up according to some reports. So for the Raptors, if you're not going to get a young asset like THT back, it's, it, it's just, it doesn't seem like it's enough for your franchise player. No, no, not at all. And that's kind of where that catch 22 comes in because on the one hand, other executives are saying he's 35. We don't want to pay too much for a one, two year playoff push kind of rental, even though in that short term, Kyle Lowry can certainly help any number of teams win. But on the other hand, not just from a fan standpoint, and or, but also from an organizational standpoint, Masai Ujiri more or less admitted that in his view, he looks at Kyle Lowry just differently than other people because he knows the impact that Lowry has brought on and off the court for nine years. And he essentially went on record and admitted that I don't view him the same way as a lot of other people. And he ended up setting a price that it sounds like no other team was willing to match. And you can kind of understand that from both sides. Sarah, any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, we, as, as Raptors fans and as the organization, we value 35 year old Kyle Lowry is a lot different than any other team is going to value him. And like from Miami, for instance, like, you know, we, we wanted Tyler hero and that was kind of like the, the, you know, nail in the coffin of like, no, you're not getting Tyler hero. So we're not going to do a deal. And I would imagine if you're trying to negotiate with Masai and Bobby that, you know, if you don't, give them what they want then the deal is done and you're not getting your guys so but I mean yeah I would expect him to at least have gotten us sort of like a young kind of up-and-coming prospect and maybe like a couple of picks but obviously GMs around the league don't necessarily see him the way that we see him like you said so I'm not totally surprised that he didn't get shipped out but yeah you just you don't you don't know what was going on no no and based on what you said Sarah the interesting thing about that is the Philadelphia offer that was rumored that Philadelphia was rumored to be very close and at least some reports said that they were offering Tyrese Maxey in return yeah now Tyrese Maxey is at the very least a 20 year old point guard former first round pick from last year definitely a player with room to grow a player that can score the basketball and slot in alongside Fred Van Vliet, if not immediately, then in a couple years' time, 
to distribute as well and be a playmaker. And again, from an outsider's point of view, if we were remotely close on something like sending Kyle to the 76ers for Tyrese Maxey in a first round pick, at that point, that's an offer that I would consider taking because that to me is meaningful assets and you are building into the future of the team. Mm-hmm. And that to me is an offer that's head and shoulders, something like, oh, I don't know, Duncan Robinson in a second. Yeah, for sure. I think like the the important thing is to have meaningful assets come back your way for, for Kyle. For a fan base perspective, it would be devastating to trade Kyle Lowry and get nothing back. Like you get a cap dump and a second round pick. Like that would that would be devastating. Like that would be really hard for Raptors fans to accept. And I think that Masai understood that and that's why like a lot of the deals that were out there he said no the value of Kyle is more than this and that kind of reminds me even though this is a different sport and definitely not an apples to apples comparison but as a Calgary Flames fan when Jerome McGinley went to the Pittsburgh Penguins before that point it was fairly obvious that Jerome had given almost all he had to the Calgary Flames. The mid-2010s Calgary Flames were a bad place that I don't really want to go back to. They were a team (laughs) that were fairly middling, fairly prone to inconsistency, and nowhere near a deep playoff push. And Jerome wanted to win a cup. But now, granted, like I said, it was a different situation in part because Jerome McGinley had a no-trade clause that he was only willing to waive in certain instances. And so that limited what Calgary's front office could do with him and what they could try to get him for. And no doubt that, uh, that uh, affected the negotiations. By the end of the day, Jerome McGinley went to the Pittsburgh Penguins for Kenny Agostino, Ben Hanowski, and a first round pick. Kenny Agostino and Ben Hanowski, neither of them have even come close to succeeding in the NHL. They were, Agostino, I think is a bench player, minor league journeyman somewhere. Hanowski, I'm not sure is even playing hockey anymore. And if he is, I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's ECHL or overseas. And so to give up the greatest Calgary flame of all time for a return like that is something that I certainly hope the Toronto front office would not do with Kyle Lowry. From that standpoint, I'm glad they didn't. FYI, Kenny Agostino is currently on the Toronto Maple Leafs taxi squad. Uh, right. He has put. He has played one game for the Toronto Maple Leafs in three years. So, minor league journeyman. I was right on that. Right. So, at the end of the day, for me, again as a Raptors fan, I am happy that he stayed. From a journalist point of view, I'm not sure because obviously we're not privy to the details of the offers that were put on the table. And in my opinion, if Masai Ujiri ended up turning down something like Tyrese Maxey in a first rounder in return for Kyle, that might have been a mistake on his part because in that situation, letting Kyle very possibly walk in free agency doesn't do a whole lot for you beyond sentimental value for the fans. But again, we have no idea if Maxey was offered and if so, how serious Philly was about attaching a decent pick to that and... I suppose we'll never know for sure, and time will tell if Kyle decides to re-up with us in free agency, us being Toronto. And I think that if Kyle does re-sign with Toronto, hopefully at a, an affordable contract, he wants to take a, a hometown discount, essentially, or a home team discount. That changes this conversation. 
but we're going to have to see what happens. Now, Norman Powell, on the other hand, has found himself a new home. He was the other piece that was heavily linked to trade rumors ahead of the trade deadline. He is now a Portland Trailblazer, and coming back the other way are Gary Trent Jr. and Rodney Hood. Thoughts? Sarah, I'll let you go first. Um, well, here's the thing with Norm. There's bad Norm, and there's good Norm. Bad Norm is really bad. Like, really bad. Like, can't play defense, can't shoot, and he has the ball a lot. Yeah, and he just forces everything, and it's a mess. Good Norm is fantastic. And good Norm shows up usually when he gets the opportunity to be in the starting lineup, which he had sort of been in and out of all year just based on injuries and, you know, not wanting to start Aaron Baines and all these other things. So I think I think his time had kind of come and he was going to cost big bucks in the summer. So I think it was wise to let him move on and then see what kind of bag he can get in the summertime. And you're totally right about that, Sarah. Norman Powell is rumored to be seeking a contract in the $20 million per year range. And for a guy that has proved to be a solid starter, sure, but like you said, struggles with consistency at times, I'm not sure it would have benefited the Raptors to take that much of the cap to pay someone like that. Now, the return we got for him is its own discussion. And I know, Tyson, you weren't necessarily the biggest fan of that. I was not. Again, like, I don't watch a lot of Portland games. Uh, So, like, Gary Trent Jr., he's not, like, super big on my radar, so to speak. But, you know, kind of what I'm hearing is is that he's this young player that has some potential to be a player like Norman Powell. So, to me, it's kind of like you traded Norman Powell for a player that could eventually become Norman Powell and that it's kind of redundant for me to to make that trade and and not get a, another asset along with it I, I I don't consider Rodney Hood a particularly good asset he's been on some good teams and he's failed like he he went to Cleveland and he couldn't play with LeBron and you know he's kind of struggled to stay in starting lineups at times so you know Rodney Hood I, I'm not super big on he'll provide some bench depth and he'll be able to come in and and, and give Kyle Lowry and, and Fred Van Fleet some some rest. But, you know, the, the bulk of this trade, the, the thing that made this trade swing was Gary Trent Jr. And, and uh, I'm not necessarily – like, I would have preferred if there was another pick thrown in in that trade as well. Or Damian Lillard. Just kidding. We should uh, <laughs> Yes, please. <laughs> I don't think you can even pull that off in 2K unless you hack the source code. But <laughs> nonetheless – Folks, let's just get you a bit more context surrounding this this Norman Powell deal because he draws some very interesting parallels career-wise with Gary Trent Jr. that a lot of you may be unaware of. For example, Norman Powell was a second-round pick, 46th overall in 2015. As we said before, many second-round picks fail. In fact, most of them fail to make it at the NBA level. Norman Powell did not He has worked on himself, bet on himself, become a solid, albeit inconsistent starter, and a contributing part of the 2019 Toronto Raptors championship. Gary Trent Jr. was a second-round pick, 37th overall, so fairly close in the draft. He was drafted in 2018. Both Trent Jr. and Norman Powell signed a three-year deal ahead of their respective rookie seasons, which is an interesting factoid. 
And just like Powell, Trent Jr. has played his way into a starting position in the NBA to the point where he is now viewed as a solid asset, albeit perhaps not the biggest deal, like you said, Tyson. Nonetheless, just to remind everybody, even though Trent Jr. is viewed by some to be a, essentially a player who can become like Norman Powell, and there is an argument to be made that that's kind of a redundant move, the counter-argument to that is he is, for the foreseeable future, going to be a much, much cheaper alternative to Norman Powell. We already talked about the fact that Powell is seeking roughly $20 million per year contract, and there are a lot of reasons why that might not be the best thing for Toronto. Trent, in all likelihood, is not going to net nearly that much money on the free agent market. He's also a pending RFA, restricted free agent, and as such has a cap hold of just $2.1 million this offseason. Norman Powell's cap hold as a UFA unrestricted free agent is $16.3 million. That is a massive difference. And it is definitely something that I think played a key role in the trade. Now, as for Trent Jr. as a player, like you guys have alluded to, that's kind of the, the elephant in the room, as you will. Now, the positives is that he is 22 years old. Definitely he's got a runway for improvement. He is an ascending high volume three-point shooter, having hit 40.2, sorry, 40.7% of his three-point shots over the last two seasons. That's that's quite good. And he also takes rough, he's also been taking over seven threes a game this year on average. So high volume and hitting at an excellent clip from beyond the arc. Definitely there's I think there's always going to be a place in the league for a guy like that. The obvious downside, however, is his ability to finish at the rim. Now, Sarah, obviously, you know, and Tyson, you know, that Norman Powell is a very good slasher when he is on his game. He can, he can blow by guys, he can get to the rim, and he can finish with authority. Dunks, layups, drawing contact and fouls in the paint. Gary Trent Jr., right now, not so much. He is a decent finisher when he gets to the rim. The problem is he does not get there very often. And it's just not a big part of his game right now. He's a guy that relies on his teammates to get him the ball for a good shot, which off can kind of pencil him in as a, or pigeonhole him as a three and D wing type of a player. The good, the good news for that is that because he doesn't put the ball on the floor very often, he's one of the least turnover prone guys in the NBA. And now, as you said, Sarah Norman Powell has a tendency to turn the ball over when he is having a bad game. So there is, there is that to consider. Sarah, I just want to ask you, what do you think about, you know, Gary Trent Jr. as a player? Like, how would you analyze him? Um, He seems to have, like, a bit of a mid-range game going. Like, a sort of, like, 12 to 18-foot shot that seems to be falling pretty consistently from the very small sample size that we have of him on the team. So I'm hoping that that will continue to grow and expand and he can you know that comes a really reliable shot for him that he can knock down no problem i think he's he's got a bit more defense than norms than norm has so i'm hoping that that will also work out for us so we'll see well yeah that's a that's an excellent point sarah and another part of gary trent's scouting report is this shall we say rather nascent mid-range game that even though at at this point, he's pr- actually primarily a three-point scorer. Like I said before, he does have the potential to drive in a little bit 
and hit hit these floaters, hit these mid-range pull-ups, and if that becomes a consistent part of his game, to go along with his high-volume three-point shooting, he can definitely be a very useful offensive asset, starter material. And as far as defense goes, you know, Trent Jr. is is known for his effort on that end. He doesn't foul as often as Norm, and he forces turnovers as a similar rate. Even though statistically right now he is not a great defender, he certainly has room to grow in that department, and the Toronto Raptors are, are hoping he does that. Yeah, you know, he's still young. Uh, Trent Jr., he's, he's, got a lot of, he's got a lot of room to grow. You know, like you said, he's much younger. He's much cheaper than, than Norm, and, and he's definitely a, a player that has some promise. Uh, I'll say that. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of what Gary Chen Jr. turns into over the course of a few seasons, playing with guys like Fred Van Fleet and Pascal Siakam, and, and seeing how he kind of fits into this Raptors lineup going forward beyond this season. It'll be good to see him and, and kind of get a taste for him. But, uh, you know, ultimately, the small sample size that we'll have the rest of the season, I'm not sure that we can kind of judge uh, Trent Jr. based off of that. We'll have to see what he looks like next season when hopefully the Raptors are back in Toronto. Yes, please. Tampa is cursed. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to cheer for the Tampa Bay Raptors anymore. Anyone? No? No, it's you getting were, old. No? I'm not I'm, a fan. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I, I, want my, I want my Raptors back in Canada, please. Yeah, after that Pistons game last night. Oof, that was rough. Yeah. And yeah, on that... Been tough. And on that note, let's move on to something more positive. Yikes. <laughs> but one thing I, one last thing that I did want to say about Gary Trent Jr. is that off, off the court, he is known as a stand-up guy. He is very popular. Very, he was very beloved in Portland. And he's actually yet known for being, being a great person off the court. For example, what a lot of people may not know is that Trent Jr., has a childhood friend named Jordan Bolton, who also played college basketball. But in February of 2018, Jordan Bolton broke his neck in an accident and was paralyzed from the neck down. And Gary Trent Jr. has remained a key part of Jordan Bolton's life since that accident, being one of the most important supports in his life as Bolton continues to work on his rehab and continues to try to get back to a state where he can move under his own power. It is it is a fantastic story. Again, a very touching story. And that definitely says something about who Gary Trent is as a person. And you could, any team could certainly use that in the locker room. One more thing before we move on from the Raptors here. I just wanted to say something quick about Rodney Hood and sort of contextualize him for listeners who might not be familiar. He's a 28-year-old wing player. And for the majority of his career, he has averaged over 9.6 points per game. And in many of those seasons, he was in that 12, 15 points per game average. So at least he can score. But like you said, Tyson, he has been prone to some inconsistency. He has shown that he has some trouble when playing on, on good teams and he's not quite that good enough. Or sorry, he's not quite good enough in some situations to make it. He also tore his Achilles late in 2019. And since coming back from that, he has been shooting just 29.8% from beyond the arc, averaging 4.7 points per game in the Portland rotation this year. So he may or may not be a serviceable bench asset. And there is even a chance that he is just here to clear some cap space on Portland's end. 
as well as maybe provide the Raptors with a short-term rental that they might move in the offseason in another sort of a, a bit move. Yeah, I think so. And I, I mean, I, I don't expect, you know, Rodney Hood to change lives, so to speak, and, and absolutely, you know, start shooting 50% from three. Although we um, wish. You can, you can always hope for the best. Um, yeah, what do you, Sarah, what do you think about Rodney Hood? I think I think he's fine. Yeah, he's he's fine, and he can come off the bench and give us like a few points. I'll take that because apparently nobody on the bench can score any points now. So he's, he's a know, guy. He's a guy who can you know put up some shots and hopefully they fall. So wait, wait, we'll a see what happens with him. Wait a second, Sarah. Are you meaning to insinuate that DeAndre Bembry is not in fact in the conversation for sixth man of the year? <laughs> I mean, I would have given that to Chris Boucher, but he's kind of fallen off a cliff lately, so oh, I don't no. know about that. But you, Utah, Utah wanted Tommy. I love Utah. He goes out there, he tries hard, but I don't know if he's he's the solution. <laughs> he's got well, he's got lots of effort. Unfortunately, not does. a lot of skill. He's a he's a tryhard, which we appreciate on the Raptors, but I just don't know if he's he's a reliable piece moving forward so mm-hmm. i mean we'll one <laughs> one thing i read on the athletic today that i thought summed that up fairly well what you guys were talking about is the avery bradley corollary guys who try hard and are great in the locker room but have limited at best upside when it comes to actual basketball talent and impact on a game and Every team needs those glue guys, and I'm sure that they contribute in ways that don't show up on the score sheet, but needless to say, they're not people who are going to change a team. They're not people who are going to take a team from missing the playoffs to making the playoffs, and you know, that, that's really too bad. But nonetheless, we will have to see what happens with the Toronto Raptors in the next couple of years here. This season is really not looking great for them, and I think at this point, Raptors fans – should be tempering their expectations fairly significantly and expecting to, to reload for next year, hoping that, you know, hoping that someone like Gary Trent Jr. can really take a step forward, that Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam can continue to be, or perhaps in Pascal's case, can fight through the adversity and become very good starting pieces that we can build a team around. And maybe, hopefully, probably, having the team back in Toronto will help them all from a mental and an emotional standpoint. And we all know that that is important when it comes to on-court performance for any professional athlete or any athlete in general. But folks, that's all we have for our Toronto Raptors segment. And so Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. We'll let you go now. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. It's been super fun. It's good. We'll have to get you on again soon. For sure. I'm happy to come back and, and chat about Raptors anytime. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. All right, folks, with all that said and done, it's time to move on to our next topic tonight. The NFL and the free agency storm that happens every year, like clockwork. (laughs) And there have been a number of teams wheeling and dealing as of late. And the New England Patriots are certainly certainly one of them, Tyson. And I saw a meme the other day that I thought really it was very funny and encapsulated what, what they seem to, be, uh, seem to be trying to do is that it said Bill Belichick after one losing season, and it was a screenshot of a Madden video game where the user is turning the salary cap off. 
And while that's obviously not literally <laughs> taking place, it's very indicative of what's going on down in Foxborough. Yeah, so it turns out that Bill Belichick likes to spend money, apparently. This is the first time he's ever kind of really gone out and done a big free agent splurge. And uh, I think this is the most amount of money that, that the Patriots has spent ever on, you know, free agents and and uh, the first day of free agency for sure. And then later on afterwards, they got uh, Hunter Henry as well a few days after. So big splashes by the Patriots. And it's interesting to see what they've done with their roster and, and who they've added and the, the players that they signed. And I think it's interesting that they've addressed a lot of weaknesses by signing some of these players. So uh, I would never have guessed that Bill Belichick was the one to spend a whole bunch of money in free agency, but here we are. Matthew Judon was the signing that caught my attention the most going to New England. And in my opinion, he might be the one that has the most impact because Judon has really turned into a Pro Bowl caliber edge rusher in Baltimore. He's big, he's physical, more than starting quality. He's ha- he has 34 and a half career sacks and plays hard against the run. And when you put him with Dante Hightower, who will return after opting out due to COVID last year, you've got two very athletic, hard-hitting linebackers, one playing inside, one playing outside, that could really set the tone for the New England defense. And it's kind of interesting that Baltimore didn't choose to keep a guy like that, but that to me is one of their, one of their biggest wins so far. Yeah, they definitely added a little bit to their defense by signing Judon. There are a few uh, nuances that go along with Matthew Judon. In Baltimore, a lot of his pressures came off of um, like non-blocked assignments. So he was a free rusher during a blitz. So the defensive coordinator of the, of the Ravens essentially uh, schemed it up so that way there would always be or, or there would be a free rusher running at the quarterback. And that was oftentimes Matthew Judon, and that's how he got a lot of his sacks this year. So winning one-on-one versus offensive linemen might be something to watch for this year in New England with Matthew Judon because there's a chance that he might struggle with that. But, you know, he's definitely got a lot of uh, talent, and, and you know, he got, he got the payday, and, and he is now a New England Patriot. For sure. And thank you for that little bit of a film dive there, Tyson. It's definitely something that we're going to have to watch out for. Now, another one of the Patriot signings is a guy that has kind of become our personal whipping boy for humorous purposes, and that man is Nelson Aguilar. Two years, $26 million for one of the more inconsistent pass catchers in the league, He had 896 yards and eight touchdowns last season with Vegas, which is certainly not so bad, but A, the contract is a bit on the large side, and B, Aguilar is one of those wide receivers that has a maddening tendency to refuse to hold on to the football at times. Yeah, dropping the ball is something that is definitely not, you know, good. (laughs) And that's something that is definitely something Aguilar has struggled with in the past is holding onto the ball and looking in catches. Uh, He was drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles and there were numerous times that were caught on tape where he either didn't put in an effort to try and catch the ball 
or he dropped some wide open passes and you never want to see that and you never want to put that on tape and on film but when you kind of look at Nelson Aguilar's career he had really good numbers and he still had a few drops and, and that drop push who was still a problem in Oakland or sorry in Las Vegas but um yeah Nelson Aguilar you know he, he's he's a good route runner but he has trouble catching the ball and that's something that's always been frustrating for him for sure and we'll have to see if he can shore up those hands or or not that definitely is again it's it's maddening at times to see wide receivers a literal players who are paid to catch the ball not be able to do it when it's not a contested catch it's again it's it's one of those things that happens yeah i mean like you get these really fast wide receivers coming out and and their whole personality is like i'm fast i'm fast and then you get to the nfl and and everybody's fast and all of a sudden now you need to be fast with sure hands and i think that that's something that kind of that's that's what happened with Nelson Aguilar is that he was fast, but he didn't have the sure hands developed in college, and that's plaguing him in the NFL now. Indeed, and the thing though is that Nelson is not the only pass catcher that the New England Patriots have picked up over the last few weeks. The two tight ends is something you certainly alluded to a, a while ago. Johnu Smith from Tennessee. Hunter Henry from the Los Angeles Chargers. Let's take a look first at Johnny Smith. And this is a deal that really shocked me because it's four years, $50 million with 31.25 million of those dollars guaranteed for a tight end that has never hit 500 yards receiving. That to me is a fair wow. is overpay. All right. Johnny Smith's best season statistically was last year where he had 358 yards receiving but seven touchdowns. Now, the seven touchdowns is not bad, especially for a tight end who's expected to be more of a red zone threat. But Johnu Smith, other than that, his highest receiving yardage total ever was 439 yards. He's only 25, and so you imagine they might be paying for potential here, and he certainly played a role in that Tennessee Titans run game as a blocker. So, sure, he's got some versatility, but... That is a big contract to throw at an unproven tight end. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that he had never hit 500 yards. I guess for a few seasons he was playing behind Delaney Walker in in Tennessee, and that's probably something that hindered his production, and, and I guess you can kind of look to that. It's interesting, like, Jonu Smith was a two-star prospect coming out of high school, and he went to Florida International, which is a smaller university that doesn't particularly give a lot of, you know, NFL talent. And, and they're not the Ohio States or Alabamas where they get all of these great players kind of coming out of their program. And, you know, he's kind of that smaller guy who's always had to work his way up, and that's kind of John U. Smith. And he got an opportunity last year as kind of the number one tight end. And, and I think he was serviceable, and he was really good. And a lot of Tennessee Titan fans really liked his potential that he had. And he, he definitely showed a lot of promise in the red zone and his ability to get open. He's very fast um, for, for a big man who's also very good at blocking. So he's got a lot of potential, but yeah, I, I didn't realize that the contract was as big as you said it was 31 million guaranteed is a lot of money for potential. Yes. And the jury is certainly out on whether or not Smith will reach that potential despite 
just by showing flashes. And interestingly enough, the Patriots paid more for him than they paid for Hunter Henry, who is arguably the more proven playmaker through the air. Henry signed three years, $37.5 million with $25 million guaranteed. And Henry, like I said, he's a proven playmaker to a certain extent. His last two seasons, he has broken 600 yards in each of them with five touchdowns 2019, four touchdowns last year, respectively. That, that's not bad. The issue with him is injuries, is that he lost all of 2018 to an injury, and he has yet to play a full 16-game season in the NFL. So, Tyson, what do you think of this? He definitely has a lot of potential. And, you know, he, the Chargers really liked him as a red zone threat. Uh, Hunter Henry is a receiving tight end. He's not necessarily a run blocker, and he's not going to lead the way on any lead blocking schemes. But, um, you know, he's got a lot of talent. He, in college, won the Mackey Award for the best tight end in the country. So that's really good. And that shows that he has a lot of skill and a lot of high-end potential. And, you know, Hunter Henry was definitely one of uh, Justin Herbert's favorite targets last year. Kind of that big tight end in the middle of the field is really friendly for quarterbacks. So that's something that, you know, I think that will really benefit Cam Newton and the Patriots going forward is, is having that tight end in the middle of the field that's really good at running routes. I, I hope he can stay healthy because, like you said, it's been, it's been frustrating for him trying to get back onto the field and trying to play his, the way, you know, through the season without getting hurt. Hopefully that he can experience a healthy season here soon. And I think it's really interesting. I just want to touch on this. Bill Belichick signed two tight ends. And it was came after the previous year where he drafted two tight ends in the third round. So I think this is kind of Bill Belichick signifying that I messed up on the draft. I have to go to free agency and I have to fix this. For sure. Now, having said all of this, you mentioned a name that probably still haunts Patriots fans that he's still around. That's Cam Newton. He's not Superman anymore. At this point, he's playing like Clark Kent with a cold. And that is definitely not a good thing for, for New England. He had eight touchdowns to 10 interceptions last year and was one of the most lackluster starting quarterbacks in the NFL. And not only that, but those highly poor stats at times didn't even reflect or encapsulate how bad he truly was that he his accuracy has always been scattershot and it was poor last year his decision making has always been scattershot it was poor the one thing that you can say about him is he's still big strong athletic can run but obviously he's not being paid to play running back and so i know that there were a lot of patriots fans who were fairly upset with the news of him re-signing and it's not just because of his new hairstyle that has added several inches to his overall height and what make the NBA's Alfred Payton proud. Uh, Cam Newton, <laughs> I, I personally don't think that he is an NFL caliber starting quarterback that unless he really rebounds this next year, to me, Cam is an athletic backup at best and he's got a missile launcher and he can't aim it. That's, that's my two cents. Yeah, that's that's your take. I think I have a little bit of a softer stance on Cam Newton. Um, he added 12 rushing touchdowns this last year, so I think that's something that you have to keep in mind. Like his 
his mobility is definitely an asset. So when you look at his stats, yeah, he had eight passing touchdowns, but he had 20 total touchdowns. So 20 to 10 total touchdowns to interceptions. That makes it more palatable when you look at it that way. So, and, and the Patriots scheme, they weren't trying to pass it in the red zone. They were trying to run the ball, and they had a lot of QB power options where they had Cam Newton running behind a fullback, a, a guard that was pulling in a tight end. So, you know, they had a lot of designed run plays for Cam Newton to try and get that ball into the end zone on the ground. Uh, so I think when you look at Cam Newton – you have to look at him as a rushing quarterback primarily because if you try and look at him as a passer, you're going to see what you see, which is not necessarily the best quarterback and maybe not even a starter. So while the jury's still out on Cam Newton, I want to make the point and say that, you know, he was significantly better in the Patriots offense before he got COVID-19 this year. And once he kind of got COVID-19 and he came back and, you could see that his his mobility had had decreased. His uh, stamina was definitely not what it once was. He didn't have the endurance to keep running as much. So with Cam Newton, I, I want to see what he looks like a year removed from testing positive of COVID uh, to see you know what his conditioning looks like prior to the illness. Because I think that yeah, you know, he was still playing, but I think there were some lasting effects that even us as fans, we didn't necessarily see. That's a very fair point as well. And I certainly hope that Cam is able to have a bit of a bounce back season, even though I'm no Patriots fan, but it's always tough to see a former MVP fall as far as he has apparently in the span of a few short years. And you're, you're right. My, my, I'm a bit biased in favor of passing quarterbacks. And I believe that, even though rushing quarterbacks are a lot more viable these days and they're a lot more popular these days, you still have to balance that out or out, that out, excuse me, or else it is just that much easier for teams to play a spy and key in on the quarterback as a rusher. And I think the new England Patriots experienced that the hard way last season. And you know, we'll see if Cam Newton can, you know, if he can get back to being even a little bit of Superman, show us, show us some flashes of Superman, not just running the ball, but passing it as well. And moving on from the Patriots, why don't we go to last year's uh, runner-up, the Kansas City Chiefs made a couple of interesting moves. Jaron Reed, the defensive tackle from Seattle, as well as Joe Tooney, I believe, the offensive lineman of New England, although, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but... Tyson, what do you think about these two moves? Yeah, it's an interesting move. I really like the the Tooney move from uh, from New England. The, he's an interior guard, so it, he, he's not going to kind of fix their tackle position. If you don't know, the Kansas City Chiefs actually cut both of their tackles in the offseason. So mm-hmm. their left tackle and their right tackle spots will be different this year. After they is, were thoroughly shredded by Jason Pierre-Paul and Shaq Barrett in that Super Bowl. Yeah, which is interesting, right? When you look at the Super Bowl and you saw Patrick Mahomes running for his life and, you know, trying to evade rushers and and everything, you can see how not having a good offensive line can really throw the football game in the other team's favor. So I think it's interesting that the Chiefs kind of decided, you know what, we're going to part ways with both of our tackles and we're going to sign an interior offensive guard in Tooney 
to a big, big contract. And, you know, he's a solid player. He's going to play, I think, on that right guard position. They might try and kick him to tackle, but we'll have to see what he looks like there. And the other one, Jaron Reed, I think is one that they could really help their pass rush. Reed was Reed at times was a disruptive, disruptive force on the inside for the Seattle Seahawks. And in fact, he was second on their team with six and a half sacks last year, which was very interesting for an interior lineman who is not named Aaron Donald or Geno Atkins or something like that. Now, granted, Seattle was a pass rushing anomaly last year in that they had a safety, Jamal Adams, lead them with nine and a half sacks, which frankly, I think that's much more of a backhanded compliment than anything else. But yeah, if, if different, different conversation altogether there and certainly having another guy to play alongside Chris Jones will be, will be an asset. Yeah. When you think about the chiefs, they spent big money on Frank Clark a couple of years ago and and he's had a he had a down season last year. He didn't have the the amount of sacks and pressures that I think the Chiefs were hoping for. So it's interesting that the Chiefs made it a priority with you know limited amounts of cap space to go and get uh, a, a Jaron Reed to bolster that defensive front, so that way they can go out there and disrupt the run and disrupt the pass a little bit more. Now. The other thing we need to mention is that Jaron Reed is coming on a real discount here. One year, $5 million. That's it. And at most, that bumps up to $7 million if he hits certain incentives. So to me, that's a very low-risk, high-reward deal for a defensive lineman that can rush the passer and definitely can play against the run. The Joe Tooney deal is slightly larger. Five years, $80 million, and... That's definitely a big commitment to make, Tyson. Yeah, five years, $80 million. That's, I think, $16 million a year. I don't know. My math it could be off. Um, but, yeah, like that's, that's no small amount of money for an offensive lineman at any position. You know, the highest paid left tackles, which is the premier offensive line position, are only in the $20, $21 million range, and those are the best of the best. So $16 million for a guard, that's a lot of money, especially if they're not going to be maybe kicking out to tackle as much as you think. So with the Chiefs, I think they're hoping that that will really stabilize that interior line position and, you know, that that, that will be solved and they'll be able to build an offensive lineman around the interior. Uh, I, I don't know if I like that necessarily. I like having really good tackles on the outside to deal with, you know, premier pass rushers. Uh, you know, you got – Khalil Mack and and um, TJ Watt and now JJ Watt and and those guys are you know going to be going up against your tackles every single time they can, so I, I like I like having premier tackles, but I understand that when you have a premier offensive lineman, you put you put them in wherever you can and you just make it work with the best you can. Certainly, and for a final team that we're going to look at in free agency, we have to talk about the defending champs the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and they really made some history this, this offseason, Tyson. Once they re-signed Leonard Fournette, their running back on the 26th of March, they are the first team in the salary cap era, i.e. since 1994, to bring back all 22 starters from their Super Bowl victory. And that is a statement. Yeah, that's incredible. When you think... I think about like the Dallas Cowboys dynasty in the 80s and 90s. 
and they had a whole bunch of really good players on that defense and offense that got poached away in free agency. And I'm not sure, but that even could have been before the salary cap era. And the Dallas Cowboys just weren't able to retain all of their young, good players. And other teams just started picking at the bones. And, you know, kind of NFL teams are going, oh, this team's really good. They have a whole bunch of really good players. I'm going to get that player. And that's usually what happens, you know, when a good team has a, a bunch of really good players that are, you know, going into free agency, it's really, really hard to retain those players, bring them back and try and repeat with the same team. But amazingly, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have somehow been able to do it. I think that partially because of the Tom Brady, but also, you know, living in Florida with no state tax definitely helps. And it also helps that Tom Brady has never demanded a ransom from from any of his, from either of his teams. Tom Brady is there to win championships, not to be the highest paid player in the NFL. And he himself resigned. And even though recently in the last few weeks, and even though the Buccaneers did not reveal any details of how much he's being paid, we know that it is well off. You know, it, it is well off what Dak Prescott, well, I mean, Dak Prescott is an extreme example, but it's well off what a lot of the starting top tier quarterbacks are making in typical Brady fashion. It's also reported that that deal is a four-year extension that voids to a one-year extension in a way that reportedly saves the Buccaneers $19 million against the salary cap this year. Just another reason why, first of all, Brady has seven rings. <laughs> because he he was doing this kind of thing all through his time in New England, and it's certainly more understandable why the Buccaneers were able to become the first team to bring back all twenty-two of their defending champion starters. Yeah, Tom Brady, if he was a free agent today, um, and and he wanted to get paid top dollar, doesn't matter where you're going, I'm fairly certain that he could get a contract offer at fifty million bucks. I'm fairly certain. Uh, it might be from Jacksonville or it might be from Minnesota or it might be from Los Angeles. I don't know, but Tom Brady is worth a lot of money. And, and I think that like the value of Tom Brady is, was proven in going to Tampa Bay and winning year one, you get Tom Brady and you can instantly contend. And that's kind of crazy to think about that a, a player can have that much influence over an organization. But you know, when it, when Tom Brady chooses to take less money in order to win, it signifies to the rest of the team and goes, Oh, the best player is choosing to sacrifice to be here. That makes me want to sacrifice to be here. And I think like when you look at the Dallas Cowboys and you brought up Dak Prescott, uh, there were players that kind of weren't really willing to sacrifice. Like DeMarcus Lawrence took top dollar. He's getting paid 20, $21 million a season. That's a lot. You know, Amari Cooper, $20 million a season. Zeke Elliott, highest paid running back in the NFL. None of these guys took pay cuts. And Dak Prescott says, well, none of these other guys took pay cuts. Why should I take a pay cut? And he gouged the Dallas Cowboys for $40 million a year. So when you kind of look at the Tom Brady model of, of taking less money in a salary cap era to win, it, it incentivizes other people to take less money. And I think that that's why 
all of the starters from the Tampa Bay Bucks Super Bowl winning team are coming back. And I'm sad about that because I don't want to face them in the playoffs. Well, you had to bring that up, didn't you? But no, <laughs> the Buccaneers are, are a juggernaut and they may be, they may, they in all likelihood will be for the next few years at least. And it remains to be seen if they can, oh, oh my goodness. Can you imagine Brady with eight Super Bowl rings? Can, can, um, you, can you imagine that? No, because I, I choose to have my sanity. Fair enough, my friend. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes aside, though, Leonard Fournette, just to bring a bow on that, he's coming back at a discount, just as Jaron Reed signed at a discount back in Kansas City. One year, $3.25 billion. Oh. For running yeah, back in this league, that is very, very, very good. And if you believe in that back as a power complement to your backfield and a guy who can elevate in the playoffs – well, hey, you know, the Buccaneers certainly seem to know what they are doing, and they're certainly in a good place right now. Folks, before we move on to our final topic of the night, it's worth pointing out that the NFL has chosen to adopt a 17-game season. The decision was made earlier this week, and it's a very interesting one in ways that you might not anticipate if you're a casual fan. You think, oh, they're going from 16 games, 17 games. It's not a big deal, right? But Tyson, what are some reasons that you think that this might be a, maybe a moderately big deal? Yeah. So I think this is a big deal because of a few reasons. Uh, the first reason is because it'll change the dynamic of football for a little bit for the seasons and how teams manage their players. Uh, for example, how it used to be is that they would have four preseason games and 16 regular games, regular season games. Uh, now they're dropping down to two preseason games and 17 regular season games so this means a couple of things you won't have as many preseason games to kind of gauge where your younger players and some of those fringe roster players are at so you'll have to make decisions and cuts much quicker in camp so some of those later round draft picks might not quite get in, uh, the chances as they usually would to have games and uh, some of those veterans that teams know more will get more of a chance than the younger guys on those last, you know, 50, 51st, 52nd, 53rd roster spot. And that, that I think it will help change the dynamic of how teams choose to construct their rosters. The second thing is, is money-wise. And adding an extra NFL game gives more football. And I think that that's ultimately a good thing for the game is that you want to have more football. And by having another regular season game, there's going to be another week of primetime television, Thursday night, Sunday night, and Monday night. So that's big time money. The TV deal is going to go up for that. And ultimately, the players are going to get a part of that money. And this was something that was negotiated on in, in the collective bargaining agreement between the, the NFL players and the NFL owners is that the owners had the option to choose to exercise the 17th game and they've chosen to do it because we're in a pandemic and more football and more money is a good thing for the NFL. So that's what they've decided to do. Now with players, this means that you have an extra regular season game that you can possibly get hurt in. And injury prevention is going to be something that has never been more important for an NFL organization because you're playing that extra game and you know, you never want to see it, but 
every year there's usually one or two players that, that get hurt in the last game of the season and then they're out for the playoffs. So that's really tough to see and you never want to see players get hurt. But with this extra 17th game, it'll create a, a different dynamic and it'll create a little bit of a different uh, nuance on how teams play and how teams train. And I think there will be more of a focus on injury prevention versus, you know, maybe getting ready for Sunday football and hardcore tackling in practice. And we certainly hope that that is going to be the case because Tyson, according to sharp football analysis in 2020, the NFL had 555 injuries, which was an increase of 16% over the previous three year average. And because of COVID-19, there was no preseason at that point. And San Francisco 49ers fans know exactly what I'm talking about in in this situation. Football is an extremely, extremely physical game, even more so in some ways than something like hockey. And for the casual fan, adding an extra game might not be such a big deal. But as, as we know, Tyson, and as anyone knows who seriously watches football, it is all too easy for someone to roll up on your ankle someone to hit you shoulder to head, even though it's not allowed. It's freak non-contact ACL tears and Achilles injuries. This is a very, very hard game on the human body. And last year stands as evidence that without preseason and addition, strength and conditioning to get regular roster players in particular physically ready for, for the season, more. And a lot of high-profile guys can get hurt more, which even though we're getting more football next year, stars like Nick Bosa getting hurt and George Kittle getting hurt, that is definitely not good for the game of football in general. And I definitely would hope that every single team in the NFL is going back to the drawing board with their their strength and conditioning in this reduced time frame and the preseason approach in this reduced time frame to give guys the best possible chance to stay healthy. Yeah, I agree. And nobody wants to see like premier players like Saquon Barkley and, and Christian McCaffrey sit out the whole season. Saquon, with injuries. Christian, those are two other great examples for sure. Right. And, and I think that you make a good point. The lack of preseason games and training camp specifically, you know, the, the muscle buildup around your ACL ligaments and your bones didn't happen because of COVID and restrictions and you didn't have that training camp time to practice. So the buildup of your muscles weren't necessarily where they needed to be and the player was still as explosive as they were but they didn't have that injury prevention there from the muscle buildup so they were more susceptible to injuries uh, especially during contact so hopefully teams are are protecting their assets and their players and, and that we can hopefully see a decrease of injuries this season because nobody wants to see anybody get hurt no no definitely not But now it's time to move on to our final topic of the night. And this time we're moving back to the NHL. We're talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs. All you Habs fans can click X on the tab right now. I'm just kidding. Please don't. But we're here to talk about a player by the name of Alex Galchenyuk, who was drafted in 2012, third overall, first round by the Montreal Canadiens, he did not exactly work out in Montreal. And after a bit of a tumultuous journey, he's now found himself in Toronto. And Tyson, you, you have a few thoughts on how he's fitting in. 
Yeah, so I've been pleasantly surprised by Alex Galchenyuk playing on that second line with uh, John Tavares and William Nylander. It seems like he's fit in pretty well in that line, which is definitely more than what I was expecting. You know, I kind of expected Alex Galchenyuk to kind of be that depth forward that would come into the lineup if if the Leafs were absolutely desperate and ravaged by injuries in the playoffs. But, you know, other than that, spend most of his time on the taxi squad and, you know, ultimately not make a very big impact on this team. But I'm happily surprised in that he's been doing, you know, quite well. Like you said, he's a third overall pick of the Montreal Canadiens, but he's he's really struggled in previous years. He, he's been on seven teams in the last three years, which is really hard to deal with. That's a lot of change for one person. If you're anything like me, I don't like change and I don't like having a lot of change in my life. But, you know, Alex Galchenyuk having to change teams, change coaches, change systems and change cities – that's a big deal, and, and that can kind of wear on you, especially when you're thinking about, oh, I'm a former 30-goal scorer. I'm a former third overall pick. And I think with Alex Galchenyuk, when you think about his career, he's been traded to you know Arizona, and he's tried it in Pittsburgh, and ultimately he tried it in Ottawa. And you know when you think about Alex Galchenyuk's career, I think what has happened is that he's kind of had a wake-up call. Oh, I'm only being offered a million dollars to play for the Ottawa Senators. Oh, I'm on the fourth line of the Ottawa Senators. Oh, I'm getting traded to the Carolina Hurricanes. Oh, I'm a cap dump in the trade. I'm not even a player. Oh, they're going to put me on waivers. Nobody's going to claim me on waivers. Oh, oh. And then the Leafs go, oh, I'm going to trade for you now. And that I think kind of woke Alex Galchenyuk up a little bit in kind of saying, Oh man, like this is, this could be my career. And I think like that's something that woke up Alex Galchenyuk. Now that's a very good point, Tyson. And like you said, Alex has been through a a tumultuous journey in his NHL career in which he has certainly failed to live up to that third overall billing For context, in Montreal, the team that drafted him, he did experience five straight years of 40-plus points. And in 2015-16, it was his best career year, 30 goals, 26 assists. And at no point was he scoring in that stretch of time less than 17 goals. So he was an established 20-goal, 50-point scorer with 30-goal potential. Now... That's not so bad if you were drafted in the second and third round. But as we know, Alex Galchenyuk was drafted quite a bit higher than that. And he also struggled with the defensive side of the game. Now, even though he was not meant to be a Patrice Bergeron, a a full-on two-way forward, in his last year in Montreal, he experienced a minus 31 plus minus despite the fact that he scored 51 points. Now, let me, let me spell that out for people who don't understand what plus minus is. Plus minus is that that essentially gives you plus one every time you're on the ice for a goal and minus one every time the other team scores on you. Now, to score 51 points on your own and yet be a minus 31 shows you how much of a liability that Galchenyuk was in his own end. Plus minus is a flawed stat by itself. But as we've said before, when it's that bad, 
badly skewed to either the positive or the negative, it is telling. And for a scoring forward that is boosting up his own plus minus by finding the score sheet with some regularity, it's very, very, very concerning. And it didn't really change for him when he went to Arizona in 2018-19. He had 41 points, but was nonetheless a minus 19. That is not a good look at all. And you don't have to be a Patrice Bergeron, Jonathan Taves type of player to be expected to do considerably better than that. But in limited action, Tyson, what do you think of Galchenyuk defensively in Toronto? Galchenyuk has actually been quite surprising, like I said. And, you know, he, he's had a few assists and he's been dangerous around the net. And he's done everything that he's been needing to do on that wing with Tavares and Nylander. Against the Edmonton Oilers, there was a play where the puck became loose and Alex Galchenyuk kind of did this um, instantaneous between-the-legs backhand pass. And it was right on the tape to Tavares. And that was the, um, the, the second of the third goal for the Maple Leafs. And then the third goal for the Maple Leafs that tied it at 3-3 was also assisted by Galchenyuk because he had the puck behind the net. He was hounding the puck. He saw that uh, Hall was open. He tried to hit him, but it deflected off of the skate, deflected right to William Nylander. Sometimes you get some puck luck and William put it in. So with that situation, like you're looking at Alex Galchenyuk on that left wing, and it's almost as if he's kind of come back into his own and, and started playing well. Like this is kind of what Alex Galchenyuk was supposed to be in all of the previous stops before Toronto. This is kind of what he was supposed to be like in Arizona and Pittsburgh and Ottawa. But he never quite got to that point with those teams. So it's interesting to see that Galchenyuk has been playing really well. And I'll be definitely be watching to see what happens the rest of the season with Galchenyuk. But as of right now, it appears that Galchenyuk has been really good on that second line, playing top six minutes. Like you said, he's a goal scorer. He's not going to be a defensive player. So playing him on that third or fourth line isn't necessarily going to do the Leafs a whole lot of good. It's not going to serve them a whole lot of purposes. But playing him with uh, Nylander and Tavares will give him an opportunity to have success. And at this point, that's all Galchenyuk needs and that's all he wants. So uh, hopefully that that continues and the Leafs can, you know, maybe have found a real nice player here in Alex Galchenyuk. Limited sample size, but the return initial returns are certainly positive. And hopefully for his sake, if Galchenyuk is playing on that second line with two extremely skilled forwards, it can help him become better defensively in the sense that he's not put in as many compromising situations, right? Not only will those guys help him find the score sheet, but generally speaking, when the second line's on the ice, first or second defensive pair is on the ice with them. And so that will definitely provide some rear guard support so that Galchenyuk is hopefully not as exposed when the puck is going the other way. And again, plus minus is not something you can judge a player by in a vacuum. It can be a very misleading stat. And so what I would be looking for as an outsider is that if Galchenyuk can continue to score it, you know, at this point, I think that a 60-point pace per 82 games is, is definitely the, the low end of the hope for him with all this talent. And if, if he's doing that, 
we hope that his plus minus is better than minus 10. That's what I will say, because it would be a sign that he is less of a liability in his own zone or less of a liability on the ice than he was in the past. And certainly a lot of credit for that may go to his teammates, the top two defensive pairings, shutting it down when he's out on the ice. You're not going to play him penalty kill one. There's no point for a player with his skill set. So yeah, we will, we will have to see. And we hope that Galchenik is able to revitalize his career to at least some extent in Toronto. Well, Montreal fans might not want that. And they may feel a tad uh, underwhelmed or cheesed if their <laughs> former third overall pick comes to bite them wearing a Leafs jersey after all these tumultuous years. But sometimes one man's loss is another man's gain. And that's how it goes in the world of sports uh, sometimes. But folks, that's all we have for you tonight. We want to thank you for tuning in and, and bearing it with us as we try bit of a new thing tonight and we hope to see you back quite soon so for Tyson Workington I'm David Song good night from the draft board